This episode is hosted by Sean Falconer. Sean's been an academic founder and Googler. He has published works covering a wide range of topics from information visualization to quantum computing. Currently, Sean is head of developer relations and product marketing at Skyflow and host of the podcast Partiality Redacted, a podcast about privacy and security engineering. Astasia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be back. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for being here. I know you've been on the show in the past, uh, but it's it's been a while, and it's also the first time that we've talked. So let's start by having you um, introduce yourself. So who are you? What do you do? And how did you get to where you are today? Well, that's great. Um, yeah, so hi, I'm Astazi Myers. I'm a partner at Quiet Capital, which is an early stage focused VC fund. I lead the enterprise practice at Quiet. I particularly focus on solutions that sell into technical audiences. So dev tools, AI, data, you know, love things that are open source. Um, the stages I focus on are very early. So pre-seed, seed, and series A. I've been really humbled to partner with companies like LaunchDarkly, Solo.io, Dremio, Hex, among others. And, you know, you asked about kind of my path into venture. You know, I don't think anyone has an exact path. There's many different routes uh, to get here. Um, mine is slightly unconventional, like most. Um, you know, I was born, raised in the Bay Area and, I um, mean, really started my career working at two early stage enterprise software companies and product and customer engagement roles. Super enjoyed that experience, but I had this history of doing, uh, you know, academic research starting in high school. And so really wanted to continue to leverage my research skills interfacing with tech. And so, you know, went into sell side equity research to cover publicly traded tech companies in the cybersecurity, IT, and networking world. So think, you know, VMware and Cisco and Palo Alto Networks, among others. And it was an absolutely wonderful experience. I realized through that process, I really like doing the deep dives about the innovators and up and coming companies that were going to disrupt the incumbents. So, at that time, it was, you know, pure storage and Nutanix and Nicira, everyone who was doing software-defined X to disrupt the, you know, hardware vendors um, and super enjoyed that work. And so wanted to get closer to that action. So reached out to the head of Cisco Corp Dev to join their team. I covered Cisco. I was a huge admirer of the business they built and how they really took um, their inorganic growth strategy seriously. I mean, the most acquisitive tech company of all time. I thought it would be a great place to go and learn. Um, so joined the team and worked with the core business unit GMs for networking and servers, helped them think through acquisitions, spin-ins, venture investing, um, you know, got to invest in businesses like Cohesity when I was there, which was very cool to see, worked on this you know, the acquisition of uh, Spring Path and the um, software-defined storage space. And, you know, when you're in a role like that, it's very exciting because you get to see all these different transactional types. But when you're doing, you know, mega acquisitions on one side and early stage venture investing on the other, it's really hard to, you know, balance the two because, you know, acquisitions, all hands on deck, lots of internal discussions and materials creation created. So 
um, given that I really liked working with early stage teams, helping them do certified designs with the Cisco BUs of marketing and sales, I decided to join a venture firm. Um, I was part of Redpoint Ventures for four and a half years on the early stage team, um, you know, working with DevTools, AI and data companies. It was very exciting. Um, and, you know, about a year and a half ago, I joined Quiet uh, to do the enterprise practice, which has been really fun because we're even a little bit earlier than my old firm. So often partnering with day zero founders, barely have any code written, really investing in the belief of the exceptionalism of the team, their vision, and the big opportunity in front of them. Awesome. Yeah, that's an uh, incredible path. You know, I think that interest that you have as a VC and sort of the dev tools, big data, AI is is, is perfect for you know the software engineering daily uh, audience. And we have a lot of I think founders, aspiring founders, and and just you know generally curious individuals that listen. So I definitely want to dive into your mind and during this conversation and and how you sort of make decisions around investing. But you mentioned that you very early on, you you started with an interest in sort of academic research. And I'm curious how, how has that helped you or maybe it hasn't in, when you've moved into being uh, on sort of the venture side of things? How does, is, is research still a big part of your job and sort of understanding where the market's going? Yeah. I. One of my favorite parts of being a venture capitalist is the research side. Maybe it's because I didn't start there, um, you know, when I was younger. You know, we have the unique opportunity to build a hypothesis about a company or even a space and do work to validate it by talking to buyers, builders, and experts in these categories. See, so a large majority of the work in this role is doing the research really like grassroots style of distilling a whole bunch of different data, you know, quantitative and qualitative to drive to a sound decision for an investment, but also have a perspective on how a space is changing over time. What are the macro trends that are going to disrupt existing vendors or what are new movements that are creating opportunity for founders? Mm -hmm. And you you have a you know a particular interest or or at least the area of investing that you're on is the early stage investing so how is that different than people who are working more on sort of later later stage investing what are the the types of things that you need to be thinking about as an investor and the things that you're looking for that might be different than someone who's coming in at a later stage totally you know as an early stage investor team is so important. Oh my gosh. You know, we, we just talked about research. Um, you know, we diligence the team members for their exceptionalism in a certain domain. It could be technical. It could be on the go-to-market side of the house. We really look for them to have a unique insight into the market that they are best positioned to solve um, based on their track record of you know, past work. Um, something that's very important to me is, you know, 
teams go through ups and downs. It's it's not always like, you know, straight up and to the right. And so we really do, oh, we wish it was, you know, it's so nice for everyone involved. But we really look for people that have demonstrated grit and tenacity in an aspect of their life. Um, you know, someone that may have come from a humble beginning that overcame that through dedication, hard work, someone that may have had a setback in their career um, that has motivated them and put a little bit of a, a chip on their shoulder. Um, and with this company, they're going to do everything in their power to make it successful. Um, you know, team is always important. I would say at the the later stage, which I'm thinking as Series B+, plus, there's more demonstration of the team's ability because the product is often built. You know, they have a go-to-market team. You can look at some of the financials of the business. When I'm partnering companies at the earliest stages, you know, as I said, sometimes there's no code, there's no product, there's no customers to talk to. You know, at the late stages, you have a lot of data. Um, you know, it's kind of a gradient of um, information that you have over time. Um, the second thing that I look for in addition to team is really the product that they intend to build and the, the vision that the founders are executing against. And so, as I said, I personally don't need the product to be built, but I want a clear understanding of what it's going to look like, its core differentiation, and importantly, why that matters to the end user and buyer. It's great to be different and special, but it has to count for something when the product is used. Um, and so we do a lot of research of connecting uh, prospective founders we partner with, with buyers. Often we're on sales calls with them. We reach out to our own community to do validation. And it's a very important part because team and vision are, um, you know, the main things that we can anchor on because we don't have the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what you were saying about how, uh, you know, it's, it's, most journeys of a, a you know a founding team or any company it's not just you know up and to the right even though the successful ones uh i think as an outsider uh looking at a company especially once they've reached some level of success it's easy to as an outsider think like oh wow like they just you know everything went right for them they knocked it out of the park it's a, or you get these stories that are covered in you know TechCrunch Disrupt or wherever uh or and and it's like overnight success but you don't see the eight years of like grinding through, you know, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the like side of the, the road, like through all kinds of dirt and, and mud that it took to actually get to that place where they are perceived as this overnight success. So you, you talked about, you know, team is a big part of this. So, and this idea of grit, which I a hundred percent agree with, but how do you actually like assess someone's grit? If they haven't found a company before, what are the like signals that you're looking for that give you the sense that this person is going to be able to figure this out, even if they haven't figured it out today, and they're going to stick through even those like hard times, because things are going to get hard with every company. So how are you kind of like evaluating that at such an early stage? Okay. Something that we do look for individuals that have taken something in their life from zero to one. It could be an open source project that they built, released, and have maintained over time. And you know, in open source communities, there can be many opinions about the progress forward, right? So an ability to communicate and manage. Um, it could be 
doing something zero to one inside of an existing business. Many phenomenal data and dev tool founders come out of large companies who built an internal tool from scratch, got the multi-stakeholder buy-in, and then was able to share it out with the end users internally. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not just in the professional world. I think it's great to see the ability to overcome challenges. Oh, you know, we lost budget, but then we somehow persisted for this project. It's important to see in the personal life as well. You know, as I said, is there an example of a hardship um, with their family, education, or, you know, health that they were able to endure through? Um, you know, for me in particular, I even work with a founder today that you know, got COVID very early on um, and was building this company and actually got long COVID and like would not give up. And everyone account was like, this person is a beast. This is his life. He will do anything to make this happen. I'm not say suggesting to put your health at risk, but it was just an indication of they're so deeply believing in what they're building and the why behind it that they will take extreme action, you know, for others, it could be they were on, they were athletes and somehow in the course of high school and college, they, um, you know, decide because of a, you know, injury had to train pass. They thought they were going to be a professional and they took the opportunity to reskill their skills and pursue a profession as an engineer or and product and those are very hard choices and that's something that you have to reconcile and endure and so to see someone go from a hardship to taking that to their advantage and using it as motivation to go do something else that's really compelling speaks volumes listen yeah so it's not necessarily the uh like grit of having founded something before but there's signals essentially of you know they've gone something through something hard or a challenge in their life and they've been able to overcome it is a good like gives you a sense essentially that this person could probably like figure this out or they're not going to give up is at the first hurdle or something like that i mean is that your main sort of way of you know evaluating or separating essentially like the a players from the b players is around grit or are there other things that you're also looking for as I said, I think it's, um, you know, deep domain expertise and aptitude in a space that's demonstrated to their contributions in their field. I think it's important to have grit. I think it's also important to have very strong communication skills. Um, you know, as founders, in essence, you're salespeople. You are selling the vision. You are selling the product. You are selling to have people join in the earliest days. And so communication and persuasion is critical. And the next thing I think is also very important with founders is their ability to, you know, how to put this, their ability to have some area that they spike on incredibly well. Not every founder is going to be an expert in all things. Most of the founders I work with um, are deeply technical, know their field inside and out, and they appreciate that they need help along the way. It takes a village to build a startup. You know, as investors, we try to contribute and help. 
um, angels do that as well. Advisors. So founders that spike in one domain exceptionally well, but also have the, you know, self, uh, perception that they need help. It's something we look for. Those that are, you know, open-minded and coachable. Right. Yeah. Because you're right. Like you're not going to be an expert in everything. And it's also important that self-awareness to realize where those gaps are and where you might need helper are going to be uh, key to building a successful team and a successful organization. And I think one of the things that you highlighted there was around essentially the, the founder or the founding team, they are the original like sellers of the company, uh, whether that's raising capital, closing their first customers, as well as bringing in talent to build out their team. They need to be able to have that like strength in communication. I think that's something that sometimes we, especially like, you know, people from the uh, pure engineering community, you might miss. It's like, yeah, you can build the technology, but can you get people to follow you and believe in the vision of your product and communicate that and build a team and a culture? These are all the like really, really tough components of uh, building a great uh, company and, and being successful. Totally. Yeah, it's, it's a great point because amazing technology that no one hears about and those about exists in a vacuum, right? And so communicating it out into the world is incredibly important for our founders. Yeah, yeah I built a lot of great technology in the early days of my career that no one no one but my mom ever heard of. So, uh, so uh, I, I had to work for years to get better at the communication piece. So um, the given your interest in these different areas, like you know, AI, data, dev tools, there's so much like innovation going on in those areas. Like, how do you stay on top of everything that's going on in the market and the opportunities that you might have as an investor? Yeah, I've been investing for eight and nine years, and it's really exciting because there are these like macro trends that are huge unlocks. So when I started my career was the movement to the cloud and digging into you know, how that would change like distributed infrastructure and the developer experience. Now it is the rise of foundational models and Gen AI, which has really taken the world by storm. And for me personally, I love Kubernetes and, you know, cloud native tech, but that wasn't, <laughs> you know, Time Magazine necessarily. I was where my mom would be talking about it with me at the dinner table. So it's a, a different level of, you know, excitement and enthusiasm about AI right now. Um, you know, the way that I like to stay up to date as, you know, we are researchers. So we do a lot of reading, you know, it's really back to the basics. Um, you know, every morning I wake up and go through the news and the uh, newsletters that I subscribe to. I lost, I listen to podcasts like software engineering daily, you know, um, it, there's a deluge of information that we're getting through and at least what's very exciting. And, um, the AI space is, you know, each week, each month has a, a macro trend that people are digging into new concepts that are emerging. So. Earlier this year, it was the concepts of chaining and orchestration, uh, orchestrating large language models that I've written about on my blog, Memorially. You know, over the past month, it has been AI agents and, you know, the repetition of workflows and more autonomy of systems, taking that 
not just on servers, but as an end user experience in the browser, you know, next month, who knows, it could be retrieval systems and how do we actually go and get the right data at the right time for these models. It's very exciting. Um, and for me, given that I do invest in technical solutions, often it's academic papers as well. Like NERIPS is amazing. Um, and going to the conferences and hearing these authors speak about their work, um, it's very boots on the ground at the earliest stages to learn as much as quickly as possible um, to understand these markets, particularly in AI that is moving incredibly quickly. Yeah, so I, I was at a, actually at a meetup in uh, the San Francisco uh, area last night, and the, you know, there's for like 20, 25 people there that work in the tech space. And, you know, I think everyone's sort of like default icebreaker question was, uh, you know, what's your company's plan for AI? Like, and it's like almost a joke, but like everyone has an answer to that because they all have a plan for AI. So given like this huge explosion that's happened around generative AI, like, you know, my, my parents are talking about it. Like, it, it, you know, it, it reminds me of essentially the introduction of the internet in the late nineties where everybody knew what it was and everybody's interested in it. it's like transforming the world. And then you had the same thing with like the introduction of the smartphone. And now this is like the next big trend. So how do you see that sort of impacting the venture capital landscape? Is it that every company now is just that's coming and pitching is going to have to be thinking about what is the AI component of whatever they're building? And is that also making it so that maybe other types of companies that don't have that, that are equally innovative, but in a completely different space are going to get overlooked? Mm -hmm. That is a wonderful question. It's something that we think about all the time, as you can imagine. Um, Gen AI is not just in impacting infrastructure and SaaS, but every domain from consumer to fintech and even defense tech. Um, internally, we even put together a, a thesis doc for our respective areas about what the broader impact will be. Um, one thing that is interesting about uh, you know the adoption and use of AI and product experiences is unlike moving to from you know local uh, license-based software to SaaS or from you know desktop to mobile, the ability for incumbents to um, integrate and compete with startups with their own AI strategy is very compelling. Um, so like looking at Notion and Canva and Adobe and Microsoft, they're moving very quickly to embed AI functionality from uh, you know, chat and Q&A to summarization to content generation in their space. Um, for us, when we're looking at startups, we are thinking through if it actually needs AI to be a 10x better experience, um, you know, while AI has massive impact, it's not always the case that you have to have it and even having it will make you differentiated. And that is because, as I said, the incumbents are embedding it in their process. So what we look for is how does, if you're using AI, how does that create a superior workflow? How do you solve the pain point more accurately than alternatives? And also, if there is a data moat that you are creating as part of the product experience. So are you collecting 
insights from the end user that can inform your model and provide, uh, you know, a moat over time. Um, for me, I don't necessarily think that all companies need an AI story, but they need to have a rationale of why it's not a good fit for their business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think another thing um, that, you know, I, I've thought about with this explosion as well is similar to how the public cloud has made it so that it's much faster to essentially build, you know do a company today like in terms of the technology like 20 years ago the first like year or two you're you got you're building you're buying higher hardware to do anything at scale you know you're solving that problem now that problem is basically solved it's like a commodity you go to aws you go to google cloud or wherever um and you're off to the races and you don't have to think about that and you're you're building something from basically like day zero if you if you want and now with the um you know generative ai things like chat gpt and all the things that are happening there now uh, it, it's lowering the barrier to entry for other parts of i think the startup experience for creating content email nurture like all these types of things that you would actually have to sink time into pay for resources you might actually be able to get up and running much faster because you can essentially increase the efficiency of your existing workforce five or ten x and that could actually increase the number of startups um, that are, you know, getting funding, going to market so much faster because they that barrier to entry now is significantly reduced. Totally. It's so interesting you mentioned this because I was actually talking with a founder this week and he was saying, you know, oh, we originally thought that we were going to go hire 15 engineers to go build out this product. Now we think we can do it with 10 because we are using products like GitHub Copilot and some of the other AI-enabled workflow solutions. He's like, we think we can just get a lot more leverage out of our current employees and minimize the number of like new hires we need to make to accomplish our product milestones. That's really interesting to hear that impact so early in the adoption of these tools. Um, you know, we will... You know, the results will tell um, the, you know, the level of productivity that early stage teams can get. But, you know, most of the people I know that are working um, at businesses are playing around with chat GPT, using it for Q&A, thinking about, you know, modern RPA through a browser extension to capture workflows and do automations. But now it's AI enabled. So it is pretty cool to think about the benefits we could have from this. Um, and also it enables, you know, professionals to think on, think about things that are more strategic than, you know, the blocking and tackling of the role. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think it's, it's, it's replacing individuals, but it's making individuals significantly more efficient, essentially. So, um, uh, and I think, it's uh, just like how there's been evolution in, you know, programming languages. Like there was a, a period of time when everybody was programming in assembly and it'd be crazy for someone to be doing that today, unless there was like a really good reason because you, the efficiency gains you get as an organization, if you're working in a higher level language are there. And, um, it, and I think anybody who's like getting into engineering today Ideally, they're thinking about how can I leverage these tools to be better at my job? How can I free up my time to be thinking about like harder problems to solve and not necessarily 
the kind of like repetitive tasks of you know pulling pushing data if i can offload that then i can focus on things that are really complicated uh and are innovative that are going to help uh you know drive whatever the business is trying to do totally totally it's that it enables individuals to operate more in a like specialist and like chief chief architect type of mindset because they're not as you said doing like the the basic blocking and tackling they're thinking strategically about the products evolution and the choices behind it mm -hmm. so i want to talk a little bit about some of the um, you know investments you've made in the past uh and also how you're thinking around like investment opportunities. So can you maybe share an example of a successful investment that you've made and what were sort of the factors that contributed to that company's success? And how did you think, what was the convincing factor that led to you investing in them in the first place? Okay. I think there's aspects of, that are similar around most businesses of what makes them successful. And then I'll, I'll dig into the particular company. Um, often it's like, as I said, the team absolutely exceptional, can handle hardship and execute through it. There's the aspect of them just getting shit done, honestly. It's, you'd be surprised how hard it is to just get shit done at the earliest stages. And those that perform and execute um, are in a much better position to be successful. It is a unique product that people love the differentiation, a willingness to pay for that specialty existing in a large market. Um, so one of the companies that I was really humbled to work with is a business called LaunchDarkly. It's a developer tools company that helps with feature flagging and feature management. Um, the founders, Edith and John, were technical in nature and had direct experience with the development process in their past roles and noticed this trend of people building feature flagging platforms internally which was very strong, um, you know, very strongly suggested that there was a need for pr this product because of people are spending internal engineering resources when they should be focused on their, their product that they're selling for customers that suggests there's a lot of value. Um, so we got super excited about LaunchDarkly because of the, um, you know, very strong team validation that this was a pain point and the vision to go build a best of breed solution so that everyone could benefit from feature flags and be part of the core software development life cycle for businesses. And with that, they were able to be part of the deployment process, which is a, re a repeated motion. So it could be a consistently used product across not just development teams, but also product and marketing and customer support. So landing with engineers and growing across the organization. Um, it's been a very exciting ride to see the success of LaunchDarkly. And like all things, you know, when you look from the outside, it's always up and to the right. But the team did an amazing job managing through uh, COVID and the early days of the business. And I give them a whole bunch of credit for the success they're seeing today. Yeah, that's great. Uh, the um, for the the company I work for, actually uh, in my day job, Skyflow, our CRO is actually um, previously launched Arcu, was the VP of Sales there. So she saw a lot of that that journey and growth in her her time there. Um, were you, were you the first check in with Launch Darkly? Um, my firm, my old firm, and me, we did the Series B in the business. Okay, yeah, 
Yeah, they, I think you know I, the companies like LaunchDarkly or you know these companies that take that realize that basically every engineering organization is writing a bespoke like solution to a problem that every engineering organization basically faces, like like feature flags, and then is able to take that and productize it and turn it into something like and basically give birth to like the managed service or the off offloaded version of that. That's like a, I feel like such a if you can if you can get onto that key insight like you can really build uh a, a great great company that is super high value but this comes up i feel like time and time again like there's so many engineering organizations they're like doing the same thing over and over. like authentication was one of those examples like everybody was doing that and no one thought hey like <laughs> like i should go like we should just like build this as a service and stop having everybody essentially build that that bespoke solution totally and i think what's interesting even in categories like that, where people are building the product um, internally, at the earliest stages, you still have to do a lot of validation of willingness to pay because you know engineers are very good. They're very sure of themselves. They're like, oh, I'm just going to whip it up. Like, I'll just do it myself. I've shown you I could do it before at my last company. I'll do it again. And so um, even when it's a great testament, that there is a pain there we like to make sure that you know most companies will pay for it even if they they do have engineers that are capable of building it internally um another example of this that's been really exciting to see is um you know companies in the SOC 2 compliance space of doing uh you know infrastructure data collection which is very onerous and time consuming and something even less that engineers don't want to be doing themselves and see the rise of companies like Drata and Fanta that make it super seamless so that engineers can focus on, you know, product building as compared to compliance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, not, not every company you're going to invest in is going to turn into launch darkly. So you're going to have some misses along the way as well. So when you miss out, maybe maybe you, you decided I'm not going to invest in this because I don't think that it's going to work, or you invest in something that you know ultimately like fails in some capacity. How do you go about like learning from that so that you can get better essentially at your job and and make less of those sort of strategic errors along the way? Yeah, that's a great question. I think every VC out there has the anti-portfolio of companies that they should have invested in that are monsters now. <laughs> um, deeply regret. Um, and also the learnings from working with teams and, you know, you know the roll of uh, sleeves and make magic happen and just don't have the exit we're all anticipating. Um, so for me, once again, going back to my like researcher, academic nature, I'm very rigorous with my note taking and um, my perspective on companies. So I actually like keep a running talk that I've had for, I don't know, my, my entire VC career that talks about like what my thesis was on the space, the risks. And I go back and I think through what did I get right and what did I get wrong as a pattern matching for the future. Um, you know, I've worked on teams where we would even do this um, annually, looking at the unicorns uh, across the US and what the decision at the time was for not making the investment to see if there were recurring patterns. Um, this is going to sound absolutely hilarious, but you know, I was on a team where a recurring pattern was they 
did not tend to partner with French founders for some reason or not. And we learned that in the data and we completely changed our tune um, and, you know, started very actively pursuing and value, you know, leaning forward with those founders. And, um, you know, I was very humble to invest in an Airbyte, incredible French founders. And so, you know, you never know what these like, un- you know, un- unconscious like team biases could be that are leading to poor results. And you just got to say, um, we're going to see it, fix it. And, um, you know, hopefully be in the best companies. And what are some of the hard problems that you would love to see solved that haven't been solved yet in by, by some, you know, future startup? That's a weighty question. There's so much that companies could do. So one theme that I'm super excited about right now is the application of large language models to improve the developer experience beyond code generation, but for other aspects of their workflow. So, um, you know, I invested in a business called speakeasyapi.dev that uses code generation and LLMs to do SDK creation uh, across, you know, eight, nine languages at this point to help with the integration and adoption of APIs, both external and internal. That's pretty darn cool. Like, you know, they're really helping people have better API experiences. Um, Another area I'm looking at is how can we, you know, improve the, you know, incident response and management space. You know, no engineer likes being woken up in the middle of the night. They don't like being half half awake, half asleep, going through observability data and logs and looking at the code and the knowledge base. Well, those are all great, really internal um, resources that you can apply a language model to, to understand what are the potential paths that have created this issue and provide really thoughtful recommendations of where to start in the remediation process and why to, you know, minim- accelerate mean time to dis- um, detection and um, remediation. So that's an area that I've been looking at that is, you know, unsolved today that I think is a very big space. We talk about the generation of code, but, you know, the fixing or the issues is a huge amount of time for people. Um, so if there's anyone out there thinking about like the applications of large language models for developer experiences that is not, you know, in IDE code generation, uh, please reach out to me. I'm excited to learn more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like the, the couple that you mentioned there solve some real pain points. Like I think SDK generation, like there are tools like open API where you can use protos to generate SDKs, but they generally come out like they're, they're more like a band-aid solution if you don't have people to build them because it's it's kind of bloated. It, that is not always like a perfect match to how, you know, a Java developer might be thinking about using an SDK. So if you can make that experience much, much better, uh, that's like such a, uh, I think, fantastic use case that alleviates a lot of pain for different companies. And then also if you can, if you can make on-call uh, for engineering organizations, like less of a hurdle, uh, and reduce that, like that, uh, you know, I don't know, beeper notification in the middle of the night to, uh, <laughs> to, to get up groggily and like deal with an issue, then that, that's a huge, uh, I think that's a huge win for, for, um, the engineering community as a whole. So that's really, really interesting. Um, 
And then, you know, outside of, of course, all the things that are happening around AI, and it's kind of hard when you think about what the future that to not, you know, I think bias towards particularly AI, but how do you see maybe the startup landscape sort of changing in the next five to 10 years? Are you referring to like where people are, like what products they're building or where they're uh, located? Yeah, I just want to double click what you're trying to get at. Yeah, so I, I th the way I'm thinking about it, like, let's move away maybe less from the like um, the types of products that people are going to develop, but more sort of the the landscape, like how is investing going to change, or the sort of um, you know where startups exist, those types of uh, industry trends is what I'm uh, would be particularly interested in. Yeah, when, whenever there's a you know a novel category that emerges, uh, you see the rise of specialists in that domain. So. You know, people that will only focus on cybersecurity or defense tech or AI. They're, they don't just exist as specialists within larger firms, but they go and build their own fund where they, you know, build out a platform that can help those founders in ways that they think are superior than like generalist funds. So you're in the building a cybersecurity fund, you're going to go build out a network of buyers and operators in that space if you were um you know in the crypto domain and you had your own fund maybe even had a hedge fund as part of that given that you know public and private markets were very different there um so in ai we do see the rise of funds that are ai specialist funds where they have amazing academics and operators in this space that are act as angels and advisors to the portfolio or they build out you know, talent teams that recruits particularly for, you know, MLEs or ML ops, because that's what their founders are looking for to build up the team in the early days. So I think in venture that we will continue to see specialization in terms of individuals and where they spend their time, as well as the VC firms themselves. You can see that like even the big platforms now, they would have a generalist fund and now they have specialist funds for healthcare, crypto, or cybersecurity, AI. So um, it's a, everyone is gearing towards being as, you know, fine to, how to put it. Um, yeah, just like incredibly specialist in the areas that they spend time. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a trend that you see in a lot of industries. Like if you look at like medicine, the, like the level of specialization that's happened there, like over a hundred years ago, you went to a doctor and a doctor, like they did this, your surgery and they also like, I don't know, like dealt with your, your, your cold or whatever, like, and, and delivered a baby. But now it's like, you have people who are highly specialized because the, the breadth of knowledge is so wide that there's no way that one person could be, uh, like know everything. It's just like same in engineering, like the concept of, I think a full stack developer is kind of going away because it's just the breadth of like. Uh, in depth of uh, understanding you need from like front end to back end infrastructure, all this type of stuff is just, there's just too much to know now. So it makes sense. I think in venture that things are going like a similar direction where you're going to have to have those people who are basically specialists to really understand, is this something that makes sense, uh, you know, for this market and have that depth of uh, expertise that you can want to rely on. That's a, something that will be interesting to see over time. And, you know, you're kind of starting to see it 
is, you know, even the role of a VC has many different components, right? There's the having a network and getting access to the founders. There's the relationship building component of it, um, kind of like, you know, being an account executive. There is a diligence process um, to determine if it's good fit. There's the like winning and negotiation. Um, there's the support side of the house post-investment with recruiting, go-to-market guidance, customer introductions, you know, negotiating everything like, you know, venture debt, you know. There's a whole bunch of work so far that's been occurring where, you know, large funds have built out platform teams to help on the support side and kind of like unburden some of the work for the venture investor. I'm curious to see if we'll start to see for like pre like, you know, wired money, if people are starting to specialize, like you have the person on the team that just knows everyone in cybersecurity and they can get you access and they're very friendly, but they can't do, they can't run a diligence process. Like there's someone else on the team that's like, that's their superpower. Maybe they don't want to be like externally facing, but they know the questions to ask. They know how to drive to the right decision. That's their, their, you know, expertise. And that you start to see breaking off of like certain roles in venture so that teams as a whole can get into the best deals and work with the best founders. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so as we start to wrap up, is, is there anything else you would like to share with the audience? Yeah. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm a early stage partner at Quiet Capital focused on solutions that sell into technical audiences. Love myself a good dev tool, AI product, or anyone operating in the data space. Um, you know, I do have a blog called Memory Leak where I talk about, you know, up uh, recent product announcements and cool pieces of news and not just that they exist, but why are they important? From my vantage point, what am I seeing that makes them stand out and why you should take note? So please subscribe to Memory Leak. And if you are a founder building in uh, any of those spaces at the earliest stage, I'd love to talk to you. So DM me on Twitter. That's great. Yes. And uh, uh, Memory Leak, that's a fantastic blog <laughs> title. I like that. But uh, Masiejas, th thank you so much for for being here, for coming back on the show. We've done a couple of you know episodes on generative AI, LLMs, and I think it was really interesting to hear sort of your perspective on this as an investor and kind of the things that you're you're seeing that's going on in the industry. Totally. Thank you so much for having me, John. Cheers.